Good afternoon. Hi, everyone. My name is Ashley Clemmer. I'm the Director of Programs and Community Engagement here at the Rothko Chapel. And on behalf of the staff and the board, I'd like to welcome you all here to this space and to this moment today. Um, I'm just curious. I always like to start to get a sense of who's in the room. Will you just raise your hand if you're visiting the Rothko Chapel for the first time? Anyone? A couple people. Excellent. And raise your hand if this is your first time coming to our 12 Moments series. Many new individuals, fantastic. Well, I'm gonna start by giving a little background and introduction, and then we'll go a little deeper into today's experience and an introduction um, of our guest and presenter. So the Rothko Chapel was opened in 1971, uh, dedicated as a space, a sacred space for people of all religions or none. It is the entire work of art of an artist named Mark Rothko. So not only the space that we sit in, but also these huge paintings that surround us were created by Mark Rothko. And we have a long history of providing programs such as this that sit at the intersection of art, spirituality, and human rights. So in addition to opening opportunities for us to come together to learn about different traditions and important human rights issues, um, we also open the doors every single day of the year from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. as a quiet place to sit, to contemplate, to go inside of ourselves. And I think in the midst of living in such a, inside of such a bustling city and chaotic world, more than ever, having places like this are really significant and needed. So this series that you're here for today is called 12 Moments, Experiencing Spiritual and Faith Traditions. We began in 2005, and every single month, the first Wednesday of the month, we invite individuals of different faith and spiritual practices to come and to share both an educational and experiential offering. And what's really exciting about this series that we're offering this year is that we are situating it within the overarching uh, theme of our, our shared humanity. So thinking about all of the different things that connect us. So last year, or excuse me, last month, um, we invited um, a rabbi to lead us in a reflection on difference. Uh, this offering today is on forgiveness. Next month will be on justice, and then it'll continue into 2019. And so today, as we were thinking about, while we invited the imam many months ago, like six months or more, to come, certainly we didn't know everything that would be transpiring in the world. And as we th were moving into this offering around forgiveness, um, after just experiencing the terrible incident that occurred in Pittsburgh and the shooting at the synagogue, we were thinking about what does forgiveness mean in the face of hate? And while there are many crimes occurring around the world that we see in the news, we know that there's also ongoing incidents that never get recorded that we experience in our daily life. And I have lots of facts and figures here in front of me, and I think what I want to lift up is, um, according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, the total number of hate incidents in the countries six most populous cities declined by nearly 15% between January and June of 2018. It doesn't seem like that would be the case, at least from my perspective of what I'm seeing. But what I did notice is that while there were post-sharp declines, Houston and Philadelphia reported higher numbers. 
Um, and I think that's, that's really interesting and not, not surprising of why my reality seems different than, uh, than what these uh, numbers say. So what I, what I want to do is just provide a quick moment for us to connect with the people around us before we go into this practice. And I wonder if you'll turn to a person near you. It can be someone you know or someone you don't know. And I'd like for you just to share briefly, we're just going to take about five minutes, um, to just share, like, what are the emotions and the, the feelings that come up for you when you think about hate, either what you're experiencing in your life or what you're noticing around you? And what is it that you draw upon, whether it's your, a spiritual tradition, a way of thinking, a religion, but what is, like, what is your well and what is it that you're able to pull from that, that gives you hope and strength um, and possibility in terms of how to move forward. So let's just take a moment. And for those of you who really don't want to engage in that, what you need is to be quiet. I invite you to just sit with yourself. Okay, everybody. I'm going to ask you to come back now. I know that's not much time for, for sharing, but we're just going to make a transition here. So for the next 30 or 40 minutes, I have the great pleasure of introducing Imam Dr. Wazir Ali. He is a, a newer friend to the chapel. We had the good fortune of working together in May uh, for one of these offerings, and we're excited that he was able to, to come back and share with you all today. There is a full bio here about him that I invite you to read. And then uh, we're gonna have a little bit of time at the end for questions. Um, as well as conversation, uh, just individually. So if you'll please join me in welcoming Dr. Imam. We want to thank you for coming out this morning. We greet you with traditional greetings. Salam alaikum, which means peace be upon you. Um, if you are uh, a Christian, from what I understand from my uh, reading of the Bible, and I'm no, in no way an expert. But I do know when I read about the Last Supper, when Christ Jesus came upon his companions, he told them peace. And I do know in Hebrew, uh, uh, the word is shalom. And from my Jewish friends, I know that they greet each other, shalom aleichem, which also means peace be upon you. So that was the greeting of Jesus Christ also. So I greet you with that greeting too. Shalom Aleichem uh, in Hebrew. And I want to thank you for sharing in this safe space. This is a safe space. And I want to thank you for sharing some of your time. Long time ago, one of my mentors taught me that time was the most valuable commodity that we have. And I'm truly honored to spend an hour or so with you. Um, as we lead into the guided um, offering, I first want to offer, in, in, in light of today's environment, and I'm sure anyone at any time could make the same statement in history. If we rewind, if we rewind back to the turbulent civil rights era in the 50s and 60s, someone would have said, oh, these times. If we keep going further back and we go World War I or World War II, someone would say we're living the, in these turbulent 
times are these very challenging times. So, so as humans, we constantly face challenging times, but we want to respect the, the fact that these are challenging times. And, and the atrocities of the Tree of Life, as, as, as soon as uh, that happened, I text my good friend, uh, Rabbi David Lyon, um, and I text him a, a word of, of condolence and sorrow uh, for that tragedy. Words like genocide are words that I grew up hearing because on my mother's side, I'm Cherokee, and on my father's side, I'm Choctaw. I'm Choctaw. These are two Native American clans or tribes. And my wife is Eroquai, and they're from, they're from the north. And, and so she's part Eroquai Indian. Uh, so we, would, we heard as young children growing up that a genocide had been perpetuated against our people. And I'm also um, African-American. Um, there's, there's been some debate recently about the percentage of my ancestors that were slaves as compared to those that came over as, as free individuals, but some of them were slaves. And I grew up hearing horror stories about plantations. I grew up hearing stories about human beings being put in the bottom of ships like sardines and hearing about the smells of the slave ships and how if someone would vomit, they would just vomit and everyone had to stay down in the bottom of the ship and how the ship would rock back and forth and you were actually chained down on your back for hours and hours at a time. I grew up hearing stories about how they would throw the slaves off the ship and just claim insurance for them because it, 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 was, it, it, was a deep, they were, it was lost, it was lost cargo. So if they had a sick slave, a slave that was dying, they would just throw the slave over the side of the ship. I grew up hearing stories. Now, now how much this reflects reality, we can debate, but when you're a child and you hear these things, that's the only reality that you know, that becomes your reality. So also hearing stories about how the slave masters would, 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 um, uh, would uh, rape their uh, slaves and how they would father children with their slaves. And then there was one particularly graphic story I remember hearing as a child about the intimidation that um, slaves used to face. And, there was this one particular story that sticks out in your mind, and they said that slave, a slave master walked up and cut the belly of a pregnant woman open, and when the fetus fell out, he stomped on the fetus in order to instill um, intimidation in the, in the slaves. So if you grow up hearing those kind of things, it becomes very easy to direct that energy. You can be manipulated 
very easily, especially without shared experiences, to perceive that anyone who would perpetuate these things were, were inherently bad or who were, or, or were inherently evil. And how could someone do such things if they weren't evil, if they weren't inherently evil? So this was, I, I, I was born in 74. 74 were 10 years up from uh, the heart of the civil rights movement, right? Not, not too far up from uh, the, 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 the death of Emmett Till and all those rocky times, right? Not too far up from the time that there was actually lynchings uh, in the South, uh, quite a few lynchings historically. Then we would be shown pictures of Ku Klux Klan members with signs saying America is for whites. And we would be shown these pictures. And then I still have, I have a book this big from newspaper clippings of atrocities that were committed against blacks. This can build hatred in a person. This can build anger in a person. This can build resentment in someone. However, I grew up in a town that had to be 60% Latino, El Paso, Texas. And I went to a school where one of my closest friends was white. His name was Joseph Merchant. I used to go to his house. His mother would make me sandwiches. I grew up, and two of my very closest friends were Renee and Ruben Balderrama. If I called them today, they would say brother. So, so as we grapple with the idea of forgiveness, as we talk about for, forgiveness from, from, the, from the Muslim tradition, my life experiences I'm, and I'm, I'm a young man, I'm, I'm 40, but, and I live to see like major changes. Um, I lived in a different reality than my parents lived in. My parents actually remember when they had to sit on the back of the bus. My parents remember when there were water fountains that said for whites and for blacks. And my mother's 83 and my father's 83. They're both 83. So if you ask them their experiences, they have a complete different set of experiences than I do. My father did not have a favorable opinion of whites. He, he, he had issues, very serious issues. I saw him change as he, as he got older. But if you were to go back uh, 1975, 1976, his opinions were not favorable. Yet now his, his, two of his sons are married to Latinos. One of his granddaughters uh, is married to uh, a Caucasian. And our experiences with human beings on a human level has allowed us to see that they're humans just like us. They may speak a different language, may have a different set of values, 
may have a different life, may have different fools, but at, at the core, human beings. And I remember being a kid, I was, I was like the only Muslim on the football team. And they asked me to lead the prayer. And I was sensitive. I was very sensitive. I, I said a very generic prayer. And then my senior year, I got hurt. I, 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 uh, I, I had a groin injury that ended my career. And the whole football team came to my house, all of them, Latinos, Caucasians, Baptists, Catholics, Episcopalians, uh, no faith, atheists. They all came to my house and visited me. And when they come to my house, they didn't say, well, you're Muslim, uh, we're not gonna come and see you, no. The bond we had built playing something as simple as football helped us see a human side of each other so that they came to my house, they all came to visit me because I was, I was in my house for a couple days after the injury. So these experiences, and that's the value of the United States of America. That's the value of a place like Houston. Houston, by, according to Dr. Steven Kleinberg from Rice University, is the most diverse city in America, hands down. And he's predicting that the statistics suggest that that's the way America's gonna go. That, that very soon, America's, America in general is gonna reflect what Houston, Texas reflects. And uh, through the, the Anti-Defamation League, we, I was part of something called a Clergy Leadership Institute, where Dr. Cleveland, Dr. Kleinberg shared with us that he felt that as Houston went, America would go. And that if Houston learned how to negotiate all these vast cultures and cultural differences and find a way to not only recognize diversity but celebrate our differences, that that would be a major lesson for the world. So let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. I'm an imam now. I've been an imam for uh, around 15 years. And I get a call from Dr. Uh, Elliot Gersenson of Interfaith Ministries. And he invites me to a Muslim-Jewish dialogue where 10 Jewish rabbis and lay individuals are invited to have a one-year guided interaction with 10 Muslim leaders and lay individuals. And there was an international peace negotiator who was negotiating it, and we spent a whole year getting to know each other. And one of the most powerful moments, we talked about fear. And, 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 and the, rab the rabbi, Stephen was his name, still a good friend of his, and Steve Gross, he's reformed Judaism, um, and David Rosen, uh, Orthodox. So, so this is all a group of associates. They all weren't in this group. But we asked, what is your biggest fear? And the rabbi said that what we're facing eventually will be wiped out from the face of the earth. 
he said, that's our biggest fear. Because the history of atrocities against us, that in time, if we keep having these things perpetrated against us, that, that we will all be killed. Yes. Now, this is after I spent a whole year getting to know him as a person, not just as, not just as the rabbi, but his kids. His kids are in college, you know, what their majors are, him, what he likes to do, what his hobbies are. And when he said that, there was transference. There was real transference to where I felt it. And I considered, what if that was my fear? What if that was my fear? So, one, my experiences growing up in a diverse group, and my experiences in pointed discussions where you're trying to resolve these issues, I've seen that both ways can be effective. And so then one time me and him were just having a plain conversation, and I said, you know, they tell African Americans to forget slavery, forget the Middle Passage, you're supposed to get over that. I told him, well, what if I told you you should get over the Holocaust, what would you say? Then he had transformed. Then he wrote a whole sermon that he preached at his synagogue on that issue because he got to know me like I got to know him. And just like there was transference, do you understand what that, I'm, I'm using like these psychology terms, right? I, I, I'm not trying to speak over anyone's, um, um, I don't, I'm not trying to use words that everybody can't understand. But just like there was transference over here, he had transference. And from that, he grew. And now one of my daughter's best friends is a Jewish guy. I don't know, they might get married one day, I don't know. So I think that these interactions are important, but we're in this safe space. We all come here for this. It becomes much more difficult when we leave these kind of spaces and we have to deal with everybody's individual realities. So the idea of forgiveness, at its most, at its most pure ideological application, the, 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 the idea of forgiveness in Islam would dictate that as long as the genocide was no longer continuing, then it's incumbent upon me to let God judge those who perpetuated it. When Muhammad came back into Mecca, he called for a day of peace to where there would be no bloodshed. Now, anytime there's disagreements, there's two sides of every story. One person's villain is another person's hero. So, so, so I'm gonna acknowledge that, and we only have a few minutes, 
so we don't have time to fully, we couldn't have a debate on the merits of what I'm about to say. So I have to beg you to accept that I'm giving you an authentic um, expression of this. He said there were people in Mecca who had killed his followers, uh, who had beat them, put heavy rocks on them, tried to kill him on multiple occasions, boycotted them, hired people to assassinate him. But when he went back into Mecca, he said no one would be harmed. And he called for peace. He called for a day of peace. And it's from that tradition that I draw this idea that as a Native American, I can't look at anyone in this room and get mad at you for what happened to my ancestors. That's done. God will judge them, ultimately. But I can educate so that such atrocities will be prevented from happening again and in the future. And if we are witnessing such an atrocity, we won't sit back and not say anything, or at least not pray about it. Inside of Islamic tradition, there's two, there's multiple expressions of forgiveness, but the biggest two are afu and maghfira. Afu and maghfira. Afu is a higher degree of forgiveness. Maghfira is, okay, you've insulted me. I'm not going to retaliate against you, but I'm going to forgive you. There's going to be no more beef. There's going to be no perpetuation of, uh, of, of, of discomfort or attacks between me and you. you know, we're not going to go out and get Diet Pepsi and, and have salad together but I'm not gonna seek to perpetuate a disagreement with you. Then justice has to be established by those people collectively on earth, right? So yeah, so, so, so if you're, if you, so, but even in that, once there were people shooting arrows at Muhammad and he said, oh Allah, forgive, forgive them because they only do this out of ignorance. And that's what we ascribe to, like, right? I'm not there yet. Like, if, if you're shooting at me, I'm not to the point, I'm, I'm not Muhammad. I'm not going to be able to ask, right? But if we were ascribing to his, that doesn't mean he's, he's not going to stop the atrocity, right? But he's, he's acknowledging that part of the reason you're behaving the way you're behaving is out of ignorance. So he's asking God, God to guide you out of that ignorance and bring you to a better situation. Okay. And then the second concept is afu. Afu means I forgive you and I erase any record of it as if it never happened. As if it never happened. And so when we pray for forgiveness, so let's, let's as human beings, we are all suffering. If we 
And I have a degree in psychology too, one of my undergraduate degrees in psychology, and, and I studied social psychology and biases and mental heuristics and all these mental shortcuts that exist that allow us to make decisions and sometimes bias us. If we go sit down in a room where nobody else is, we're gonna all have some biases, I believe. Maybe not you, but most people I meet, if they're just honest with themselves, we all have some prejudices, we all have some biases, we all have some errors in our lives that we need to improve upon. So, so this lofty idea is what, as a Muslim, I'm ascribing toward. I'm trying to reach that. I may not be there yet, but I'm trying to reach that. So that when I forgive you, it's as if I truly forgive you, as if nothing ever happened, as if no perpetuation no crime, nothing was done. That I, and then that's like the ultimate forgiveness. That's a higher level of forgiveness. And so in our prayers, there's a, and, and I shared with you many of the prayers, we have these prayers for forgiveness. And one of the names for God in the Muslim tradition Now, keep me on keep me on time. How are we doing? Okay, good. So the first prayer that I shared with you, if this was if most of you knew Arabic, we could go over this prayer in Arabic. And the tradition is as you say it, when you finish the prayer, you say Amin or Amin. Um, for Christians or, or Jews, it would be Amin. Same word, just pronounced slightly different. And so if we're doing a group prayer and we're praying for forgiveness, so you may often have one, one person who's chanting it, and then as he finishes, everybody says, Amin. Then we say it again, and everybody says, Amin. But I, most people in here probably don't know Arabic. So I gave it to you in English. Now, if, if after the session you want the Arabic, I do have the Arabic. But so this first one, our Lord, lay not on us a burden greater than we have strength to bear. Blot out our sins and grant forgiveness and grant us forgiveness. Have mercy upon us. Thou art our protector. This is one of the most popular prayers in the Quran. And this prayer When you, so this prayer indicates that where it says, don't lay on us a burden greater than we can bear, the language in Arabic is wus'aha, and wasi'a means to expand. So it's not, it's not like saying that we're not going to have burdens that seem insurmountable. It means if you place a burden on us, Please help us expand, grow to where we can bear that burden. We may not be able to bear it today. I may have biases. I may have shortcomings. I may have prejudices. I may have hate. I may have hate in my heart. But it doesn't mean I can't grow past that. So, 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 so lay not on this burden greater than we can bear, but also implicit in the language is, 
that we have the capacity to grow and bear and overcome. So, 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 so I would say, Rabbana la tuhammilna ma la taqatalana bi wa'fu'anna waghfir lana warhamna. And then you will say, Amen. The next meditation is our Lord, forgive our sins, blot out our inequities. So if you remember, I mentioned to you, there's two types of forgiveness. Afu and maghfir. So often when it says forgive us, that's maghfir. Uh, uh, when it says blot out our inequities or erase this from us, that's afu. Okay. So we, we've all sinned. You know, there is no Muslim who, I can't say that because that's a logical fallacy, right? So I do have a degree in psychology, so I have to be very careful how I present this to you. There's no, in most people's minds, we're all foul, we're all um, um, fallible, and, we're, and, we're, and we all have shortcomings. And so we're asking God to forgive us those shortcomings and help us overcome those shortcomings. There's even a tradition that Muhammad would ask for forgiveness a hundred times a day. And he's perceived to be the model for human life. So the, the thought process goes, if he had to constantly ask for forgiveness, then we have to constantly ask for forgiveness. So the second reading is, our Lord, forgive us our sins, blot out our inequities, and take thyself our souls in the company of the righteous. And this is Rabbana faghfir lana dhunubana wa kaffir anna sayyatina wa tawaffana ma'al abrar. And you would say? Now, I have to give just a little bit of, of um, um, commentary here where it says blot out from us our inequities, this word can also be translated as evil. Okay. Um, and evil has many different definitions. Okay. So acknowledging this potential for harm and bad in your own self. And in the Muslim traditions, one of the first things, one of the first conversations you see between God and the angels is when God is making man. And the angels asked God, what will you make, one to cause mischief and shed blood? Right after God says, I'm making you man. And the angel said, what will you make in the earth, one to spread blood and cause mischief? And then God says, I know what you don't know. And then the scriptures go on that God educated man. And after he educated him, the angel saw a new potential in him that the educated individual did, was not as inclined to these um, acts of mischief and bloodshed. And so one of the most powerful things 
in this is it doesn't run from the reality of our existence as human beings. That we have shed blood. We've have, we have shed each other's blood all over this planet. We have oppressed each other. We have exploited each other. We have taken advantage of each other. And this is also a caution against those who are reading the Quran that when you see this in the world, you don't take the disposition that the angels do. You don't see men shedding blood, uh, committing atrocities, committing mischief, and you don't let that make you think that a man is inherently evil because of that, that you don't see the higher possibilities in man, that you don't see the higher potential in man. The next, the next meditation is our Lord, we have wronged our own selves. If you, if thou forgive us not and bestow not mercy upon us, we shall certainly be lost. Rabbana zalamna anfusana wa in lam taghfir lana wa tarhamna to give you a little bit of commentary on this verse where it says thy mercy it can also be translated love and this is one of the most I think for the average reader who who is mainly reading translation, this is one of the most, a point that can be missed. Because when you look up the word mercy, rahmah, in a dictionary, the first definition it gives is love. So this mercy that we get is an expression of God's love, his love for us. In the next reading, our Lord, cover us with your forgiveness, me, my parents, and all believers on the day that the reckoning will be established. And the reason that this reading is very important is it reminds us in the Islamic tradition if we are oppressors, we will have to answer for that. The wrong that we do, oppression, murder, atrocities, that at the end of, the, uh, of, of our existence, we will stand before God. And he's the final reckoner. So that's, that, that's a constant reminder. Matter of fact, there is a tradition among Muslims, that the prophet said, help your brother if he's oppressed or if he's the oppressor. So his companions didn't understand. They said, we, we understand how to help him if he's, if he's oppressed, but are you saying if he's the oppressor, should we help him be a better oppressor? Muhammad said, no, to stop him from being the oppressor. Then the last reading from the Quran that we'll go over today 
God says, say, O my servants who have transgressed against themselves, do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Indeed, Allah forgives all sins. Indeed, he is the one who is forgiving and the merciful. Now, I couple that with one of the things I put from the traditions of Muhammad. They go hand in hand. Where it says, so, O son of Adam, so long as you call upon me and ask of me, I shall forgive you for what you have done, and I shall not mind. O son of Adam, were your sins to reach the clouds of the sky, and were you then to ask for forgiveness of me, I would forgive you. So this, the, the, the concept of forgiveness is that there's a chance for redemption. I, I, I do ministries. I do ministries with individuals who have been convicted of crimes, um, who have felonies, and some of them did bad things in their life. And they're repentant. And what this particular ayat suggests, or this verse suggests, is that, listen, it doesn't mean there's no hope for you. Don't give up hope. Don't think that I'm so bad that I will never be forgiven by God. Seek forgiveness. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of Muhammad's companions that became synonymous with spirituality and leadership, the day he became Muslim, he was going to kill Muhammad. That was his intention. His name is Omar, Omar al-Khattab very famous, but that was his intention that morning. And then in our every day after we pray, we pray five times a day. Was anybody here last year? Last year we went over the prayer, what you're doing every step. But after we pray, we do what's called vicar. Vicar means remembering God. And the first thing we say is only God is perfect. And that saying is subhanallah. And we say it 33 times after every prayer. So we'll say subhanallah, 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 subhanallah. Subhanallah, subhanallah, subhanallah. Now, this is the same thing we say when whoever's leading the prayer makes a mistake. We say, glory be to God, because God is the only one that perfect, that's perfect. So we remind ourselves that after we pray. Some people do it in big groups. Others just do it privately to themselves. Some have taken the rosary beads from the Catholics and made them the vicar beads or they will count. The second thing you say, Alhamdulillah, 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 Alhamdulillah. And that's like hallelujah. That's the closest equivalent, okay? Now my father knows Hebrew, so he, he would be able to say it correctly. I, I'm not that, my Hebrew is not that good. Uh, but that's that phrase. So it'd be like if you said hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And this means all thanks and praise is due to God. Then we say, God is greater. 
Whatever your problems are, God is bigger. Whatever your shortcomings are, God is bigger. And then the last thing we will say is, God, to God belongs our service. To God belongs our worship. And that is la ilaha illallah. And these are daily reminders that we do after every prayer. And then some, some will even say, Allahum maghfirli, Allahum maghfirli, Allahum maghfirli. And that is, God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. So I want to thank you for your time. And I think we have time for questions. Thank you. Is there anything in your faith about um, karma and, you know, having to right your wrongs, uh, maybe in reincarnation or anything like that? That's an excellent question. There's, there's not, um, there's not a uh, particular belief in reincarnation. The reincarnation is when you're raised up in God, you're either going to get reward, which is called paradise, or you're going to have to be purified, and that's called hell. But even in traditions, there's some traditions, not in the Quran, but in the traditions. There's a tradition that says that people who, are, who, who, who didn't quite reach that enlightenment, even after they spend some time in hell, they'll be dipped in the water of life and they'll be allowed to go into paradise, okay? But there is an idea of making amends for the wrong that you have done in the world. And the way you make amends for the wrong you do in the world is by doing good in the world, right? And so then it translates into feeding the poor, I mean, so the biggest things are fight injustice, right? These are the big things. Uh, fight injustice, that's, that's what you constantly hear, right? Uh, especially in the, in, in the face of things that aren't your and my reality, right? Um, right now, you know, except for some, some, when something happens, HPD will send police and they'll sit outside the mosque to make sure that as American citizens, we are guaranteed those rights that our Constitution affords us as citizens. So, except for those kind of um, concerns, we see a lot of things in the world, and so of course, there's always this idea of trying to make sure that justice is done for all human beings. On the smaller scale, on the day-to-day -day scale, feeding the hungry being kind to your children, providing for your children, feeding your children, keeping a roof over their head, educating your children. As a matter of fact, Muhammad, Muhammad once said, if a man has two daughters and he educates them, that he will get the reward from God, like he'll go to paradise. And so then one man said, what if you only have one daughter? He said, yeah, you, you can get in two. But understand, this was a society that didn't, didn't believe in educating women. And it's, it's, isn't, it's a shame that we still have Although he said that 1,400 years ago, it's a shame that we're still faced with that. 
today. Are there any other questions? a degree in psychology. <laughs> so, so, let, so, let, so, so let me, so, so, so I say that because when I studied psychology, it gave me, I, ne I don't ask, I always ask why now. And that's what studying psychology has trained me to do. And people, and so when I do that, people say, oh, you're making up, you're giving people excuses, you're just excusing things away. I'm like, no, why? Why? So now, after Nazi Germany, people were faced with a very serious question about humanity. Were we really evil that that could happen? And then they were asking about, well, all those other people that stood around and watched it happen, what does this suggest? So from that came Stanley Milgram's study on obedience. And so just Google that. Stanley Milgram study on obedience. I don't have time, we don't have time to go through it right now. But what, what Stanley Milgram learned was the perception of authority tends to make people do things. And then came the whole nonconformity movement. So if somebody is practicing bigotry against me, I often ask myself, why? Were they wrong? And are they reacting from their wrong? Do they feel wrong? Were they reacting from feeling wrong? Are they ignorant? And are they reacting from their ignorance? Yes. I did an experiment once. I went, I went to every mosque in Houston. That's an exaggeration. But I went to a whole bunch of mosques. And I got cold stares. I'm like, hold on, this is not supposed to be like this. I go to First Baptist Church. Like, hey, we're happy to see you. I go to the Vietnamese Baptist Church on, in, in South Park. I walk in. Hey, we're happy to see you. So then I, so then I, I said, okay, well, this is, I'm supposed to, the people the mosque are supposed to be doing what the people at the church are doing. So then when I started to quiz them, I started to understand that there was a lot of ignorance. Many of them were immigrants. In their cultures, they, they were not trained with the same like customer service kind of thing that the churches were, that they kind of oriented their staff. Some of them just looked at me cold because they didn't speak English. So, but then some of them were playing racist. Right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. As long as they're not infringing upon my rights, my goal is to try to, one, help them get education. That's why we have Mercy Community Center. That's why we do all, many interfaith dialogues. That's why I'm here today, right? Absolutely, and that's our challenge. That's our challenge as human beings. And hopefully together, 
we can come up with an answer. Because if, 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 if Islam, the way it's practiced today, had that answer, you wouldn't have Sunnis and Shias fighting each other and killing each other for the last 2,000 years. I mean, for the last 1,300 years, right? You wouldn't have all these atrocities, right? So, so, so the way they're understanding and applying their faith, you still see these atrocities. So it's part of the human condition. So hopefully together, in these groups, if we can change one person, and that person changed another person, the world's a better place. So I go back to my own being brought up. My older siblings would have called you a devil. And then when you would have said, I'm a, I'm a good guy, they'd have, they'd have showed you all the pictures of everything that was done to the slaves. And they would tell you, how can somebody who could do all of this to a people be anything but evil? And now, they don't have those issues anymore. They don't have those concerns anymore because they had exposure. They learned. So the more we can provide opportunities like this, the better. I went to Midland, Texas for interfaith dialogue. That was interesting. <laughs> right? Because a lot of them, a lot of them, it, yes, it was, it was interesting in a good and a bad way because a lot of them I never even heard of. Heard of, 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 of Muslims like they were looking at one, like, like me, like I'm an alien. And there's one, right? <laughs> but then when I told them, listen, man, I grew up in El Paso. We used to come play y'all every year in the playoffs. Oh, really? Yeah, I said, you, I, I have nightmares of Chico Tellez, your middle linebacker, who hit me so hard my shoes fell off. So then, 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 they start to let their guards down because they start to see I was a human being just like them. But what we can't do is not ignore the realities of people on the other side of the earth, not ignore their narratives, not ignore things that have created these issues in them. Um, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, depression. We have access to all this health care. And mental health is one of the major issues that we're facing in America. Now go to all these countries where there's po all this poverty, years of war, years of family members getting killed, years of all you've known is war and struggle and poverty and exploitation and expression, and go around the world and cut study all these different places that used to be colonies, and now all of them have a story of genocide and huge atrocities, right? And they don't, they don't have the, Many of them may not have access to the mental health care and things like that that we have. So we're, we're dealing with a lot of issues. So it's complicated. Okay. Thank you. Y'all have a good day.